Hey there, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin for The Investment News Podcast, along with my colleague and co-host, Bruce Kelly. We have a couple of big things going on this week. A lot of news. Starting off with TD Ameritrade slash Schwab slash whatever that's going to be. They had some tech, some service issues there. And uh, a lot of advisors started going to social media, talking about some of the glitches that were uh, they were having getting a hold of the custodian. I talked to, I wrote a story about this, talked to uh, Rob Baldwin, founder and CEO of Trade PMR, another custodian. And we have Rob here with us. But first, I want to say hello to my colleague, Bruce. Bruce, how you been? I'm good, Jeff. Thanks. What a crazy week this week. We have a couple of really interesting kind of segments to discuss. The first about Schwab and TD, and then the second to deal with this uh, frenetic, frantic, crazy trading that's going yeah. on on Wall Street. So I'm looking forward to that too. And I think it's very interesting. I got to tip my hat to you. And I think you should talk about your story a little bit because the what you got on the record from advisors were descriptions of their experiences with the service of the services at uh, you know in the in the Schwab TD merger here and this is something that advisors have been anxious about and fearing i think from the moment that this deal was announced over a year ago so I got to just commend you for getting these people to come on the record and feel comfortable with you and to talk to you about it. If you could just, before we introduce Rob, who's waiting on the line, if you could just talk about your story a little bit, what was the headline? What was the impetus for the story and the like? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, it was uh, this was something that, like a lot of things, was kind of born on social media. Some advisors, Michael Baker in particular, an advisor at uh, on Vertex Twitter Capital. or Facebook or what? On Twitter, Michael Baker was talking about having trouble getting a hold of getting through to TD. He's a former, I guess I call him former now because the deal is official, but uh, the acquisition is official. The $22 billion acquisition of TD, right? Ameritrade. And uh, a lot of people that are that came to the, the, the big merger with TD are having trouble getting through to, to service people. And it's kind of all falling in Schwab's lap. And Schwab, they acknowledge the problems, but uh, they, they, I don't know if they know how to resolve them. We tried to get Schwab to come on this podcast and talk to us, but uh, they didn't provide anyone. And you, and this is a, you, you wrote this story a couple of days ago. So Schwab has right. known full well that you wanted to talk to somebody about this in more detail. And if I recall your story, you, they didn't make anyone necessarily available for your story either, right? No, they gave me a comment, which is kind of common practice. Right. But, uh, but not yeah, a person been, to talk to. Right. It would have been nice to talk to a, a person because these are uh, – is. I think there's a lot of egg on the face here at Schwab, and uh, I think they, they know that. Now, what were the service issues that you were talking to people about well, specifically? I think it went from a range of being on hold for a really long time right. to – Things that would normally take a day, like setting up an options account or, a, you know, a, some kind of a asset loan or asset based right. loan or something like that would take would take a couple of weeks from a day um, to two weeks to set yeah. something up like that. So clearly, I mean, 
granted, we're putting together two gigantic custodians here. They're going to have, you know, six trillion dollars <laughs> in the custody assets. business, half yeah. the more, you know, if not more. So it's yeah, it's a it's a big undertaking. And they even said this could take 18 months to three years to be fully completed. But these are the kind of things that don't make people happy. And this is actually a good segue into talking to Rob Baldwin, yeah. because Rob, and, and I'll ask you to tell your story yourself, Rob, but as I understand it, Rob, you had a situation that actually led you a few decades ago to start your own custodian because of your experience when uh, Jack White was acquired by TD Waterhouse, which is actually a predecessor to TD Ameritrade. Rob, welcome to the podcast, first of all, and tell us your story there. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with both of you guys. Yeah, I'm a former advisor. You know, so when I saw the RA opportunity being a warehouse broker uh, many years ago, I when was I when was that, Rob? It was probably around ninety two, ninety three. So we're talking ancient history here. Yes, <laughs> yes, we are. And you know, as soon as I saw that opportunity, I was just amazed that this opportunity existed for you know a guy like me who ran a book of business and really just wanted to be an entrepreneur, run my own practice, and run my own affairs and be able to choose, you know, what investments uh, you put clients in and truly become a fiduciary. It was it was a remarkable model. And, you know, when I went into the business, I didn't really understand a whole lot about the custodial space, what all went into being a custodian and how things had to play out, what different departments you had to interact with. And and there were a lot of uh, definitions of things that, that uh, I really couldn't find a lot of answers to. But you know, I learned real quick that there weren't very many in the space, and there still isn't today. As a matter of fact, that it's getting the, the, the runway is getting narrower. But because of that, you know, I, I tried to you know do business with with a few of them just to kind of kick the tires and see who was best and who serviced me efficiently. And there wasn't any technology then that was offered to advisors, so everything was go buy your own system or create your own through Excel spreadsheets and. And receive common delimited files from the custodian and hope and you know, hope for the best. And that was really how you were able to keep up with your your book of business. So you know, as things progressed, and when Jack White sold out to TD Waterhouse, I just kind of assumed and fell in line with all the other advisors who were there that everything would be hunky dory and the and the transition would occur smoothly and there wouldn't be a lot of hiccups. What I didn't recognize you know, during this run as being an RIA and dealing with custodians is when these mergers occur, there's lots of systems that each custodian runs that differ from the other, such as beneficiary departments, ACHs and wires, new accounts, all the banking systems that are integrated within the systems, the transfer departments, so the ACAT systems are even different. So when you're trying to run two different systems, it's really, really tough to get everything right all the time. And then you've got to educate people on both sides of it so they actually know what each side is doing in the transfers and, and so forth and movements of money. So you can imagine how rough it is right now to still be TD Ameritrade and you still have employees running systems on TD Ameritrade. So all the ACATs, all the wires, all the ACHs are still going on there. And yet they have reduced staff and they're still waiting on the consummation of this marriage to occur to where they're all on one system. And that's what's going to take two to three years to get accomplished. And advisors just have to understand that's just part of the process. And so there's going to be new beneficiary designations that have to occur. There's going to have to be new banking setups for ACHs in and out and check writing and so forth. All of those things are still a task that have to be accomplished. 
So the service issues are, you know, they're not going to go away anytime soon. And it's just something I think advisors have to understand when these mergers happen, those things have to uh, to take place in order for, you know, Schwab to be able to uh, take full advantage of this merger. Hey, um, Rob, do you think that any of these things, to be fair, do you think that advisors should have anticipated or expected this kind of stuff or um, could it or should it have been smoother? I know the advisors probably wanted it to be smoother, but in reality, this is a big undertaking, right? It is a big undertaking. And truthfully, as an advisor, I didn't know anything about all the nuances of the systems that had to be changed. My story got really, really, it turned bad really quickly when about $10 million of my book of business just disappeared. And in 1998, that was a lot of money. And I didn't even know it before my clients recognized it. So in other words, they had a client, they had a client statement that appeared in their mailbox one day that showed that they had $500,000 last month and this month's zero. And they right. had no and that idea was, why. That was 1998. I mean, that was, I think, before even Al Gore invented the internet, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. So, you know, it was just a, so, it was just on, a catastrophe. Rob, what happened? Well, the assets were in this so-called omnibus account, which I didn't even know what, what that was at the time. Just a basket of an account that uh, held tons of positions that didn't make it over in the ACAT. So oh. we, faxed, we just faxed statements over and over again for 90 days back to TD Waterhouse and said, you know, please put the following positions back in the client's accounts. But in the process, you know, we lost tax basis on all the trades right. that had happened before. Uh, open and close dates, in everything in historically, we had lost for those accounts. So we had to maintain paper files for almost 10 years just to make sure we had the ability to tell a client the information they needed on those trades. Right. And the, and the story here and, and why you're, you're such a great guest for this segment is that that led you to create your own custodian to make it better. So you didn't have to, people didn't have to experience those things you experienced, right? Absolutely. And, and that's why, as I, I've written a, a number of stories since this TD Schwab deal was first announced, this has got to create opportunities for custodians like yours and Fidelity and Pershing and all the other custodians out there. I mean, is this news of this week, and it's probably not the worst thing that could happen to the Schwab TD deal, but it is a black mark. Does this just, is it just another kind of a straw that makes advisors think twice about if I'm going to have this much of a hassle with the company that I'm already with, why not just look around and see what else is out there? Absolutely. I think advisors are waking up and recognizing that, you know, why should I change custodians at my, in a manner where I don't have any control? And why should I change custodians to a custodian that I'm not picking myself? So. They're taking a step back and they're recognizing the opportunity themselves to say, wow, if I'm going to have to change beneficiary designations, change banking for all my clients, go through that rigmarole, why not just go ahead and pick the custodian I choose that's best for me and go ahead and move the client's accounts and be in control of the situation while it happens instead of just kind of having a wait and see mentality. And I think a lot of advisors are, are doing that right now just to make sure they, they do remain in control. Rob, it's, it's, it's not fair for me to ask you to speak for, for TD or Schwab, but I will tell you this. One of the advisors I talked to in the story I wrote, James Gambassini, he's a $1.2 billion RIA, which you'd think would be big enough to get some attention. 
And um, he has, because he has multiple custodial relationships, he has client assets with Schwab, TD, Fidelity, and Pershing. Those are what used to be the big four. And he said, when the we all went remote uh, a year or so ago, when everybody had to go remote and stuff like that, he said the glitches that he saw, the slowdowns in customer service were almost exclusively at Schwab. He said TD was even, you know, a, a, in excellent shape until Schwab recently did a bunch of firings. They're obviously consolidating and it costs a lot of TD people their jobs. And he said that's when TD's service fell off. So, I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting The you know, kind of the remote, you know, work from home. People have had to adjust, obviously, and, you know, companies like Schwab and Fidelity and TD, those are gigantic companies. But did you guys have any kind of glitches when... When people had to go remote, I mean, you must have had some kind of, you know, adjustments, right? Yeah, we had definitely some adjustments, but truly the feedback we got from our advisors has been remarkable. All of them have said they they really have not seen any drop off in service whatsoever. We had literally one day where we probably had 10% of our workforce the, the next day after we decided to move home that had glitches, you know, connect and setting up and so forth. But after our IT team resolved all of those issues, we've been you know, working remotely ever since. And we, again, stay in constant contact with all of our employees. But I will tell you that service levels and the feedback we would get almost on a daily basis from various advisors has been incredibly positive. Okay. And I guess you've been reaching out to uh, advisors like crazy, telling them that uh, <laughs> you you guys have a uh, a warm, cozy space for them if, if they want to test the test what else is out there? Well, we just have a different business model. I mean, we work with uh, only so many advisors and that'll always be our stance. We don't really care to scale to, you know, the behemoth size. Uh, We want to work with great advisors who want great customer service. We want to pick up and answer the phone every single time they call. We don't even believe in voicemail messages. We do our best to, to answer each and every call that comes in with a human being so that we can get things accomplished and done. We've gone through rigorous training across all departments and uh, cross-trained across all departments so that people can get answers quickly and efficiently with usually just one person. Uh, you know, those are just things that our business model has has done to help eliminate some of these issues that we knew could come our way if we uh, tried to, to uh, scale too what about not be able What to about AUM? Work. What about AUM? That's something we hear a lot about that everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else that they don't want, they don't want advisors under... 250 million or 100 million or something like that. These advisors have to have custodians. How welcome are you to the smaller sized RIAs? Well, we, we welcome a conversation with anyone. If they're a small advisor, we just want to make sure they're a growing advisor, that they have a game plan and a business plan to grow their business. That's really who we want to work with. And uh, we're, we're a company that you know is choosing to grow organically as, as well as externally. And we want our advisors to be in the same position. Okay. Bruce, anything else for Rob? I was just wondering for both of you, because Rob, you must be speaking to Schwab TD advisors in your region and just out of curiosity. And Jeff, too, from your reporting, what? how has Schwab been communicating these changes, the service changes and the like out to the advisor force to the best of either both of your knowledge. Rob, why don't you go first if you have any response to that? Yeah, I don't know how they've been communicating, how Schwab's been communicating. You know, the advisors we talk to just state the same message over and over again. We're, we're looking for a home that has great service. 
human beings we can speak with and and great technology. You know, so those are the things we're focused on is trying to make sure and promote ourselves as as a company that uh, offers great APIs and connections for not just advisors, but advisors of vendors that they like to choose from so that they can have open architecture and, and pick this, the tech stack they want, as well as, uh, you know, have ours if they just choose to use ours, as well as, you know, have good customer service that, and know the things that get accomplished and get completed on a daily basis. Jeff, how about you? What what has been your yeah. perception of the communication from the mothership, you know, in <laughs> San Francisco down to the advisor in the field? Well, you know, I'm like Rob, at least once removed from the feedback that they send out to their custodial clients, the advisor base. My queries this past week for this story, uh, I got, I to be fair, I got a mixed bag. I got advisors that said, Things are smooth. Things are things are okay. I even talked to one advisor who started to open up a custodial relationship with TD after the deal was announced, but before it became complete. And he said it's been fantastic. But he did say he's a little concerned now. If once he's on board, maybe the you know the love starts to fall off. You know how it is. You deal with these big corporations. We get stuff from Schwab mostly on a on a response or a as needed or when we request it. They're not sending us uh, the media out a lot of stuff to tell us how things are going. And I I can totally understand that they've oh, got other things on the plate. But I don't honestly know. I think it's 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 a massive undertaking and it is in 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 to be fair it's uncharted. There this is a gigantic deal. I yeah, mean, I'm just thing- asking because you know in the in on my side of the street in the brokerage commission <laughs> side of the world, right? When there are these tech glitches, you know, they usually send out some kind of notification of service or something either to the to the to the broker or to the client or whatever. And quite often those wind up in in our inbox. So I'm just it's it's an evolving story. Obviously, there's going to be some. I, I I think you and I can agree on that. And there's going to be some some high points and some difficult points <laughs> for the yeah, next hey, couple can, of years. Can I speak and, to that real quick one more time? Is sure. say, can you believe that that an advisor just to kind of show you the education of of investment advisors? Not that they're not intelligent, but because they really don't understand the custodial space. Why would an advisor actually sign on with TD after knowing the deal is completed, knowing again that he's going to have to do a lot of changes on his customers' accounts in a very short period of time? You know, that just shows that these these guys really don't understand the nuances of, of the clearing business and what's going to happen during these transactions. Why wouldn't he have just gone straight to Schwab if he knew you know he was going to end up at Schwab? It sure would have saved his clients a, a lot of pain going forward. That's a fair point. And let's, clo- let's uh, close it down. Right there. Thank you very much, Rob. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, guys. Thank you, Rob. Okay, that was great stuff with Rob Baldwin. We're now going to shift over to the other big story of the week. GameStop. This is a big one, man. This is a big one. People are really buzzing in the financial press yeah, you know, about this. It's big, and it's not going away anytime soon, probably. But anyway, this is the... Uh, Short selling and uh, want to talk to frenzy, frenzy, selling frenzy, and the the battle uh, with so called retail investors. But I think Paul Schatz has a little bit of a different perspective on that, retail or at least an, versus Wall Street, an, an expanded perspective. We have Paul Schatz, 
president of Heritage Capital. Paul's a good source of mine. I talk to him a lot, and uh, he he seems to know a lot. At least I've never been able to stump him. Paul, welcome to the <laughs> podcast. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Jeff, as you know, I always tell you, fake it till you make it. And that's what I've been doing for 32 years. All right. I like it. So can you give us give us a summary of what this whole short squeeze thing is all about? Everybody associates it with GameStop, but I know there's a, a whole bunch of other companies that got caught up in this thing this week. Sure. So the big thing is when people buy and sell stock, it that's kind of the normal flow of the markets. But short selling is actually the exact opposite of buying. Because when someone short sells, they believe the stock's going to go down. So they sell it at a higher price, and they hope to replace that stock when they buy it back at a lower price. Now, this week, and it's really been more than this week, but this week has been so far the crescendo. In the old days, newsletters were just dedicated to finding the stocks that were the most shorted. And it's called short interest. What percent and who of the shorts stock- the stocks, Paul? Who are the guys who are shorting the stocks here? Well, shorting is typically an institutional thing, Bruce. It's I mean, mom and pop investors do short stocks, but on a fraction of a, a basis compared to the big boys. But the hedge funds like to make these big bets, right? I mean, I've That's watched right. millions. And so right? when you when you directionally play a, a stock like GameStop or Nokia or insert in, or Tesla was Tesla blew everybody out of the water. No one even talks about it. But you had all in the old days, all you needed was a newsletter to right. list their top five biggest shorts. And then they would try to get people to run in the shorts, meaning push prices up to force the shorts to run for cover. Because don't forget, if you're short a stock at $10 and it goes to 100, your losses. 10x, but if you buy a stock at 100, your loss is only 1x. So when you short sell, if you don't have a good risk management process, your losses are hypothetically infinity. And also, a lot of these institutional investors, like the hedge funds, they rely on leverage to do these short transactions. So if you're caught on a short, if if you own at 10 and you have to buy it back, hopefully at 10 or less. And it does go to 100. You may be exposed even more greatly because of the leverage there, right? That's right. And you know, leverage is when you borrow money and use that to invest it in the markets. But but let's remember, no hedge fund is going to take 25 or 50 percent of their investable assets and short a single stock. I mean, most of them that shorts, except for the ones that just are devoted to short selling. In the old days, it was the Fetchback Brothers, which uh, I'm, I'm dating myself. That was in the 90s and the 80s. But most you know, hedge funds, if they're short 25% of their portfolio, they may be long 125%, or they may be short 50% and long 200%. Right. There's right. a balance they play. But the key to all this isn't that they got caught short GameStop. It's that how do you get short of stock, regardless of how bad you think the, the fundamentals are? But how do you get short of stock and then have no risk management process to tell you, geez, I've, I've lost enough money. It's time to get out. Yeah. Let's get to the modern day here and talk about what happened this week and how you got companies like GameStop, which has, is, is actually a money losing company that 
their stock went up, I think, I don't know, something like 800% in the past five days, 8,000% in the past six months. I mean, walk us through what's happening there. Sure. So there's a couple of things at play, Jeff, but the, but the media is really only focused on the Reddit forum boards and, and Robin Hood uh, per se. That, that, that's the, the high profile stuff. But what happened was you got a stock like GameStop, and I, and I, did, I devoted a whole blog to it yesterday because I had some clients asking questions about this. So the stock was two bucks 10 months ago. And then it went to at 500. But what happened was at the end of the year, end of 2020, and the stock was roughly $20 and it had one enormous day early in January. That's what started the whole thing. I think it traded almost 150 million shares mm-hmm. somewhere around, I want to say it was like the 10th, the 13th of, of January. That's when this whole thing started. So you've got an enormous short interest. I think it was over 100% of the available stock was sold short, meaning <laughs> the institutions basically were placing enormous bets against right. the stock. Right. And in one day, the stock goes from 20 to 40 on 140 something, 150 million shares. So now you've got hedge funds and other institutions who are literally sucking their thumb in the fetal position under their desk saying, what the heck do we do now? Do we cover and just walk away or do we? Stand pat because this can't last. At the same time, here's the key. At the same time, you know, 75% of volume in the stock market is from computerized trading. You have computer programs that just buy a stock because it's up X percent. It's up so much. You also have computer programs who buy a stock because the volume spiked higher. In this case, you had an enormous surge and the volume spiked higher. So that caused the computer programs to start buying GameStop. The algorithmic traders, right? The so-called algorithmic traders. And then go a step further, the option markets gets hot because people say, geez, the stock is really in play. Let me go play the options because that's even a more leveraged way to play it. So before you know it, you know, your your stock that went from, you know, 20 to 40, a week later is now going from 40 to 80. So think if you're shorting the stock, you're playing for it to go down as, you know, ABC hedge fund. Now the volume goes to 200 million shares. It's at 80 bucks. More computer programs are at play. The Reddit boards are absolutely going bananas. Mm-hmm. And people are plowing in on the, on the long side to try to run the hedge funds out of it. Because eventually the hedge funds have to buy the stock back to get out and take their losses. Right. They got to cover their their shorts. Correct. And and that's what's driving up these these prices. And it's not just GameStop. It's it's I mean, I counted about a dozen stocks over the past few days that that these programs and or these individual traders are recognizing as being heavily shorted. Those are the ones that they're going after, right? That's right. So and again, it's the old fashioned they used to call it short busting. And there's a guy who just wrote a letter about busting the shorts. And you know, before I realized it, you know, we own a stock, United Natural Foods, that had a big short interest. I mean, the stock goes from 15 to 30 in a blink, which never happens with my stuff. I'll tell you that. I'm not smart enough to own GameStop and Nokia and AMC. But I mean, one of my stocks, it goes 15 to 30. And I know it's they're running in the shorts. But from, from my seat, because I'm a little more timid, 
I, you know, I start selling on the, on the way up. The minute we get above 25, you, you got to start selling. I, I don't think it's going to 250 or 500. I'm not that smart to begin with. So this is happening and it, and it feeds on itself. People mm-hmm. then say, well, let's go to the next 10 most shorted stocks and the next 10. So, and before you know it, you create this enormous snowball effect where it's spreading throughout interactive brokers, I'm sure, and Schwab, and, and now, you know, TD Ameritrade and Fidelity, and you create this like little mania. Right. Well, the 52, hold on, the 52 week range for GameStop, ticker GME, is from uh, $2.57 a share all the way up to $483, cents, uh, $483 excuse me. Right, which it hit this week, I believe, and volume in the range today. Today it closed at one hundred ninety-three sixty, but in the after-hours trading, it's already up to two hundred thirty-four dollars. So the 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 uh, the frenzy here isn't abating, despite all the the talk and the coverage and the and the like. I just want well, to interject that. Right, and and so I would say it, Bruce. It kind of is because. You saw today, I want to say this morning, it was almost 500, and then it went down to almost 100. That's probably, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to look at that and say, you can't have much more intraday volatility than that. Um, But for, you know, folks who are newer in the markets, this, a lot of this action happened at the end of the dot-com bubble. Right. So I was around, I've been, again, I've been in the business 32 years. I've seen... Plenty of manias and bubbles along the way. This is not new. Today, it's the Reddit boards. You know, back then, I remember in the mid-90s, iOmega was the first stock to actually start this kind of, back then, it was it was the chat boards. Today, it's social media. But human nature never changes from century yeah, to century. There is still nature, greed. We go greed and fear. Human nature doesn't change, but technology does. I mean, and to me, this is sort of a perfect storm right now. You've got zero trading, you got stimulus checks, you got people can trade on their phones, people are sitting at home with nothing better to do. That those are some of the things that people are saying that have have driven this recent frenzy. And from that, I like to ask you Paul, how does this ever go away or does this force short sellers to change the way they do things? I'm not when saying people go back to work, man, day. and the economy reopens again and people can go out <laughs> Well, I'm not going to go back to work if I'm making $8,000 return or 8,000% returns. Come on. I mean, <laughs> people who say it's different this time either are, are, are being naive or disingenuous. You know, so you, you just gave a bunch of super points why this could continue. But let's remember in the mid 90s, when online trading came out, you didn't call up Merrill Lynch or Smith Barney or UBS and, and, and spend 500 to 5,000 on commissions. Now you did it online for, you know, 25 to 50 to hundred dollars, which was unbelievable. And then don't forget, you know, Greenspan cut rates ahead of Y2K because they were scared everything was going to blow up. And that fueled the dot-com bubble. Yeah. Technology, things happen faster, but t- so today you have Reddit. Back then you had, you had the Yahoo message boards and other message boards. And back then, People were day trading over their lunch hour and and, yeah. and and quitting jobs. I mean, how does it end? Ultimately, this all ends poorly. This is going to ultimately end in ruins for the vast majority of people in it because 
human behavior says, I'm smarter than the next. I'll know when to stop. I'll know when to get out. And some percent of the people will do that. But the masses, because of greed and euphoria, will not. It's not going to end well. And it, it may not end until 2022 or 2023, or it may end on February 22nd. But when, when you have greed and euphoria, like the dot-com bubble in 1929, eventually it ends poorly. Hey, you think regulators are getting involved here at some point? You're already here. I'm already hearing a lot of noise from Liz Warren. Everybody's belly aching that the brokerages shut down just to protect the big money of hedge funds. That seems like an oversimplification to me. It is a complete oversimplification. The problem with with um, with Liz Warren is I don't think she fundamentally understands anything about the markets. She spewed a lot of accusations about manipulation by, I mean, almost every investor body on earth today without a shred of evidence. Um, that's dangerous. That forces people to lose confidence in our markets. Do I think the regulators will get involved? Yes, I think there's there'll be intense pressure. But what I tweeted to Warren was, how about worrying about your own house first when you've got, you know, Pelosi trading Tesla options ahead of the election and you know things of that nature. How about let's have Congress clean up their act first and stop their insider trading? Then then they can then they can espouse. But to be know, fair, Paul, great, the, yeah. I mean it, it does look a little fishy when these platforms start restricting buying of these shares, as as which was the whole point or the effort of these traders doing this. Basically, that's how they're driving up the price and forcing these these short sellers to cover their shorts and buy more. Restricting that is, I mean, how do you, how do they explain that if to, to people that think the system is rigged for the big guys? This smells really rotten. And I don't know if the truth's ever going to come out unless you obviously subpoena people or, and put them on lie detector tests, frankly. But this smells really rotten that brokerages started restricting. This is not a commodity. Where and listen, in the 90s, I got stuck short. I think it was lumber or some ag commodity. I was lock limit down three days in a row. I couldn't get out. I lost a lot of money, learned a valuable lesson. But to have the brokerages go and and start putting up barriers to yeah, trade. To restrict trades. I think it stinks. It, you know? And you know what they say? It, 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 I have not read the fine print, so shame on me for being ignorant. But I guarantee you, if you read the fine print of those brokerage apps you, you, we sign away on, right. uh, they're certainly within their legal right. It doesn't make it ethical, but I'm sure legally they can do it. But I, I can't, but I'm, and I'm a little bit skeptical. I, don't, I can't believe that they didn't get pressure from somebody who has taken enormous losses during this time. Mm -hmm. yeah. To me, this is really almost like the poor man's Bitcoin. You know, we've, there's been so much in the press about Bitcoin and, and, and the wonders and the riches. And, and I think that a lot of these people out there who are doing this trading don't understand the difference between something like a Bitcoin versus 10 shares of IBM. And it's very much a little guy versus Wall Street story. And it really does harken back to the late 90s of the day traders, Paul. I mean, what do you make of all that? It, it totally does. Again, th this is behavioral finance 101. 
It took a whole investing, maybe investing a, a, a generation and a half of investors to get back to the levels we saw in uh, in 99 and 2000. But right. yeah, this is uh, this will happen again down the road. Look, you saw Musk, Elon Musk tweeting, I think it was today or yesterday, that we should outlaw short selling. If that, that could be the <laughs> yeah, he's been wanting that for years, man. Right, but and and I think you know for a brilliant guy that may be the single dumbest tweet I've ever oh, read, and I've yeah. read some really idiotic that guy's tweets. Hilarious. I mean, people forget you, the reason why short selling is good. It's not whether I'm not on any side of it, but it provides more liquidity right. to the markets. It keeps the spreads on trades thinner. You want more people. On the other side of the trade, you don't. If you only had long only traders and long only funds, you don't have a market, mm-hmm. right? So short selling is is a healthy thing in the market. And what happened now? It's. I mean, if I were short GameStop or AMC, I'd say it's, it's more than unfortunate. But right. shame on me for not having a risk management process. Yeah, Elon Musk should stick to those battery powered cars he's making. I love the cars. One hundred twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny, guys. I, how come when IPOs come out at overinflated prices, the little guy buys that opening share price and then it goes down 25 to 50%? How come no one's screaming, yelling that we need regulation and investigations then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, hey, Paul, great point. Paul, one more thing I want to ask you here before we let you get back to making money hand over fist. Do you think that this does lead to some kind of an evolution from the short selling side? You got to figure, I mean, these short, these, these hedge funds, I'm going to call them hedge funds, although a lot of other people do do short selling, but people that are short selling, they could find other ways to, to basically bet against securities, right? And sure. maybe I mean, that would that could kind of impact liquidity of markets, couldn't it? That seems like a bad thing. Right. Well, don't forget, if you didn't, if if a fund or, or an individual didn't short sell, they could play the options market. But the problem is you need short selling to be able to put on option strategies for those people who are selling options to the public. They have to be able to short stock against what what options they're putting out there into the public. So, I mean, it is an absolute necessary function of the markets. Don't forget, over the years, in 08, we did it here, and then we were trying to stop people from shorting banks as if that was going to solve the financial crisis. Yeah. And then they did the same thing in Europe. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. Water always finds its own level, and you can't prevent the price of something from going where it's going. And I'll leave you with this. In 92, George Soros was credited with breaking the Bank of England on his play on um, their currency and the British pound. I mean, he literally, and one of the other hedge funds, they broke the Bank of England to remove a peg on the currency. How come there was no outrage? Where was the scream to regulate currency markets and regulate you know, central banks and hedge funds? So. Uh, this is an unusual thing. It it doesn't happen very often, but it's all part of the capital markets, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade them for anything. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for the summation and, and the education, Paul. Good stuff. Really glad we got you on here today to to talk about this. And it doesn't seem like something that's going away. So 
maybe we'll have to bring you back to help us uh, walk through the next little fiasco. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paul. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Yes, sir. Uh, we want to thank our fine, outstanding, and special guests, Rob Baldwin, the CEO of Trade PMR, and Paul Schatz, the head of Heritage Capital. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very own producer. And of course, if it's the Investment News Podcast, you can find it at investmentnews.com. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. I just want to mention, too, at investmentnews.com, you can find our new technology podcast, which is off to a great start. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Punch some of those buttons. We all like to punch those buttons. Twitter handles. Jeff is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. It's been fun talking to you, and we'll be talking to you next week.